1: Hi there, listeners. This is your host, Reid Hoffman. If you love our show, I have a favor to ask. Will you leave us a review on iTunes? Your reviews really help us, and we read every one. So this week, I want to congratulate Michael Coffey, a high school student who uses this show's lessons as he starts his own nonprofit. Thanks for listening, Michael. Don't let anyone tell you that entrepreneurs can't go into the nonprofit space. And thank all of you in advance for leaving those reviews.
3: Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs.
1: We talk a lot about being a master of scale on this podcast. But for a few minutes, let's talk about being a master of crabbing.
0: You know, there's a lot of technique. If I was like a master crabber, I could make sure that My net never cast a shadow, so the crab didn't see me coming up behind him, and I'd scoop him up.
1: Diane Green has been hauling crabs out of the Chesapeake Bay since she was a kid. Not long ago, she and her kids returned to her old fishing hole.
0: And I was like, let's go on this dock and we'll find some crabs and then I'll teach you how to catch them. And I went through this long, elaborate lesson with my two kids about how to catch a crab and how to have it not see the shadow and everything. And then I, I said, Now you just never can do it your first time because they're so fast and everything. And I think maybe the pollution has slowed them down.
4: I'm out of shape.
0: Because both my kids caught a crab the first time, and I'm like so much for that. I did it.
1: Okay, so even inexperienced kids can now catch a few crabs. But we're talking about being a master crabber. A master crabber can't rely on a lucky catch. They need the skills to find crabs on unlucky days. In short, they have to think like a crab. Where do crabs tend to congregate? Diane has a tip.
0: They were pretty abundant, particularly on this uh, railroad trestle bridge we had near our house. So, you know, we could go along in a dinghy and catch these things and sell them.
1: How do crabs hustle? She's got that covered, too.
0: Sometimes when we were on our boat, we would play this game where someone would be up on the very front pulpit and then people would be on either side and they'd call right, left, you know, starboard port. There's a crab and see if you could catch it while the boat was, you know, moving at about five knots. And once she could steer her boat above a skittish crab, a moving target
1: less than a foot across, she was unstoppable.
0: We could catch, you know, hundreds of them if we wanted and sell them by the bushel and make good money.
1: One thing you should know about Diane, she's not just a master crabber, she's also a master of scale. She co-founded a company, VMware. If you're outside of Silicon Valley, you may not recognize the name VMware, but their work impacts you every day. They're one of those behind-the-scenes companies that brought us into the age of cloud computing. If not for VMware, you could argue there would be no cloud, which means no Gmail, no Dropbox, no way to connect your information from any device. VMware is such a big deal, I was surprised to hear our tech-savvy producers didn't know about Diane. In my world, she's a household name. VMware hauls in $7 billion of revenue each year, That's more than 10 times the revenue of the entire seafood industry of Diane's home state of Maryland. There's a common thread here between Diane's crabbing days and her scaling days. A scalable idea rarely sits squarely on the path ahead. It's always scurrying off to the left or right, and if you can't get your team to adjust course quickly, it will slip out of sight. I believe scalable ideas often come at you sideways. Is masters of scale. I'm Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe the most scalable ideas often come at you sideways. There's something liberating about this theory. You don't have to have a completely scalable idea from day one. In fact, you can have no idea what your product might look like, or how you'll get to market, or how you'll make money. You might survive so long as you know how to look sideways. And there's an art to the sidelong glance that we'll get to in a moment. But first I should clarify that sometimes a scalable idea does come at you head on, exactly as you imagined. Jeff Bezos saw the master plan for Amazon clearly laid ahead of him step by step. But visionaries like Bezos are a rare breed. Most entrepreneurs crab walk towards a bigger market and then a bigger one still. And as they move along, the full market will come into view and they'll wonder why they couldn't have gotten there sooner. On today's show, we're going to explore how an entrepreneur can crab walk as quickly and as intelligently as possible. I wanted Diane Green to share her story, because if anything defines her career, it's a series of pleasant surprises. She doesn't have a master plan so much as a big idea and an extraordinary ability to sidle up to it. She has a knack for starting on a small project and leaving behind a lasting legacy. This goes all the way back to her college days.
0: Well, I never kind of had this moment, oh, I'm going to go try and create businesses. But I'd always built stuff. Like, I started the University of Vermont ice hockey team, which is, you know, big varsity, very well-performing women's ice hockey team today. No thanks to me, but I did start it (laughs) with some friends. My whole life, I was starting things and building things.
1: She spots a need and starts solving for it, whether it's a women's hockey team or a new use for some emergent technology. Diane tends to see tectonic shifts in technology before anyone else around her. She doesn't know what role she'll play in the future, but she's so far ahead of the curve that she ends up shaping that future herself. And I think her ability to solve huge problems stems from a particular frame of mind. She doesn't pursue money or fame, a product or a leadership position. She pursues a big abstract idea. She has this almost academic detachment from the business world, but that's precisely what makes her so formidable. Diane studied computer science at Berkeley. Her husband, Mendel, teaches computer science at Stanford. They tend to follow research the way that some couples take up tennis or salsa lessons. They learn together. And one day, she and Mendel woke up to a huge idea. Good
0: morning, Mendel. Good morning, Diane. He was giving this sunrise breakfast at, I think it was Mayfield and I was like, I'm going to that. That sounds pretty interesting because we usually miss each other you know, on those things. This was a breakfast
1: Diane wouldn't want to miss. She was about to get a glimpse of the future, a huge industry-shaking idea. That idea, server virtualization. If you're not hopping out of your chair with excitement, allow me to explain. When you retrieve emails or open documents or launch an app, your computer most likely fetches the data from a server 20 years ago, those servers were physical machines, big metal boxes that you had to own as a company. And they were finicky machines. They only talked to certain computers. If your computer ran Windows, you needed a Windows-friendly server. If it ran Unix, you needed a Unix-friendly server. Those servers would sit there idly, waiting for the right device to speak their language. They required constant maintenance and consumed tons of energy. They were like dilettantes banning themselves, and insisting that the IT team skin their grapes and clean their dishes. But imagine if you could replace all of those layabout servers with one busy machine, a server that could speak to any device. That's essentially what Mendel was proposing, one server to rule them all. It didn't even require hardware. In fact, he could add a bit of code to existing servers and get them all talking. As Mendel described how this code might work, it dawned on Diane... Perhaps they could liberate the data and allow it to move freely across servers. All it would take is creating a virtual machine.
0: He was talking about, he goes, you know, you got Microsoft with the Windows, basically monopoly, and you have Intel with the basically x86 monopoly. And I could just see him in real time. He goes, what if you could drive a wedge in there? This was the crux
1: of Mendel's research. He was investigating whether he could get these two operating systems to talk to each other, whether you could build a bridge between these two walled gardens. It was anybody's guess how big that wedge could be.
0: And so we drove back and I'm like, yeah, the virtualization, you know, we should really do this. This is really interesting. I kept saying, you know, I really think this should be brought to market and I could, you know, help you. And so finally, Mendel and I kept talking, and, and, you know, we just kind of realized how horizontal and useful the technology was the more we talked about it.
1: These quiet conversations among colleagues are critical for any idea that comes to you sideways. You ask, are you seeing what I'm seeing? With each conversation, your own vision gets sharper. The true idea comes into view.
0: And so we asked the grad students, hey, we think we could do a company with this. Would you be interested? We didn't feel that strongly, but we were like, we think there's a real company here. And this is really could be pretty important.
1: It soon became clear that this sideways glance would draw their full attention. But notice how Diane didn't feel that strongly about building a business. She was passionate about an idea, She had a vision of the future, a new virtual machine that could communicate across all devices.
0: We really had a pretty accurate vision of the importance of it and where it could go. Now, did we, for a second, think we could build a multi-billion dollar company? No, that wasn't relevant.
1: Even if it was irrelevant, she had it on her radar. She may not have prioritized building a business, but she didn't want someone else to do it first and she noticed out of the corner of her eye a growing excitement beyond Mendel's Breakfast Clubs. His research was gaining attention, unwanted attention.
0: I got this email from him that he had a paper under Blind Review, but Bill G. and Nathan M. and Rick R. would like to read it. Would that be okay?
1: Did you catch those names? Bill G. That would be Bill Gates, the founding CEO of Microsoft. Nathan M. That would be Nathan Mervold, the founder of Microsoft's research department. Rick Carr. All right, I don't know who that is. But look, once you have Bill Gates circling on your idea, that's an awfully strong indicator that you're on to something. And this raises a crucial point in your sideways journey to scale. You don't just have to look sideways. You have to listen. Fortunately, your ears are on the side of your head. Use them. Your competitors might just be rustling in the bushes, and if you spy a big idea off to one side, you should rejoice for about a millisecond, and then you should sprint.
0: And we're like, huh, really ought to get a patent filed.
1: Diana Mendel secured a patent, and just in time. As an entrepreneur, you need to know how to read the competition appropriately, whether it's competition from large companies or startups. If you're sailing in a space by yourself, and everyone else thinks you're kind of crazy, that's great. Then you actually have time. But if you think your competitors are coming, then frequently it isn't just one, but five or more competitors. Does that mean your shot at success shrinks to one out of five? Nope. The odds are even worse. Because it's possible that not a single one of you will succeed. You end up in a circular firing squad. Not one of the companies reaches critical mass in customers or talent. You're all scrambling for capital. Investors look at you and all go, I don't know which one of you to pick, so I won't pick any of you. So, as an entrepreneur, you need to see and hear potential competitors as they come at you sideways, and you need to break away from them quickly. It can be the difference between life and death. And here's where I have to tell you something else about Diane her ability to read the competitive field is second to none. And I suspect it has to do with the formative years that she spent as a competitive sailor. I suggested this to her as we spoke. As I understand it, you grew up sailing, won championships.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was the women's national yeah. champion, actually. Yes, exactly. Second in the 470 Nationals, which was an Olympic class, yeah. Wow. My father had a sailboat, and so we'd go out. And I was steering that boat from the age of two. And the thing about racing, it's, it's everything, because you have to be prepared. Your boat has to be prepared. The equipment has to be highly tuned. You want to have the fastest stuff, so you're always looking for an advantage with your equipment. And then you have to be practiced, and if you have a crew, your teamwork has to be incredible. And I sailed little dinghies up to, you know, boats with 12 people on it. And then when you go to race in a regatta, you want to— kind of have a plan for how you're going to win the regatta, you know, you get out there and, and there's so many variables to evaluate. There's the weather, you know, there's the wind, there's the current, there's the competition and what you predict is going to happen. And then as soon as you start racing, things start changing. Like, well, should I tack? What You know, should I cover that person? And, you know, should I really go into the shore like I thought? It looks like... The wind's changed, and you can't wait to run. You've got to make a decision instantaneously. And so you're constantly reevaluating, and you're constantly getting feedback on whether or not you made a good decision or not. I think it helped me really hone that ability to constantly be looking at information, evaluating it, and making decisions on it.
1: So actually, in fact, there's a direct tie between the crab fishing and the sailing (laughs) and the detail, and actually, in fact, how you bring all these together.
0: Yeah, it's very natural for me because I've been doing it since I was a little tyke. I understand the weather. I understand the wind patterns. I understand the currents. I understand, you know, the ecosystem of competitors pretty well.
1: Diane's ability to read the playing field guided VMware from those earliest days. And after they secured their patent, they got some breathing room. Aside from the stirrings up in Redmond, Washington, the competition was quiet. In fact, there were times when it seemed Bill Gates was the only outsider who saw the potential of her idea. She sometimes tried to explain the idea at parties. She told me about one gathering at a friend's house with a room full of supposedly like-minded entrepreneurs.
0: He had all these dot-com people like pets.com and webband.com and toys.com and all those people were there. And somebody's like, well, what do you do? What do you do, Diane? When I'm like, well, I got this virtualization software company. And they're like, oh, my God, you know, (laughs) you get with the program, don't you know, software's dead?
1: What they were really saying was that desktop software is dead. Listeners of a certain age may remember software arriving in cellophane-wrapped boxes. You take a CD out and download the program right onto your computer. God forbid you might spill coffee on it. But with the emergence of dot-com services, desktop software was considered passe. Everyone figured software would eventually move online to what we now call the cloud. They'd hear the word software and think, you're on. <sighs> Little did they know that Diane's software would make the cloud possible. The future they imagined would happen because of her and Mendel, but they couldn't see it. Here's the thing. When you're moving sideways towards a big idea, you may find yourself jarringly out of step with the trends of the time. Picture a highway. All of the cars are speeding ahead at 80 miles an hour. All of a sudden, you decide to veer sideways across six lanes. The other cars see you and they think, that's an accident waiting to happen. Diane drew her fair share of these reactions, but she found one investor who shared her vision.
0: We told them what we were doing. They're like, that's really Important. That's really cool. Where can I? You know, how much a check can I give you? I think it was a three hundred thousand dollar check. And I'm like, okay. And he gives me this address, and I like, you know, I didn't have Google Maps back then, you know. And I'm looking at the map, figuring out where his house is.
1: Remember, this is the late '90s. There's no Google Maps. There's no smartphones. Diane is sitting in her car, looking at a paper map.
0: And I see this driveway just strewn with newspapers and leaves and everything. And he's like, it's under the newspaper. (laughs) I'm like, which newspaper? Anyhow, I hunted around, found my check.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which has got to be one of the most unusual of the early stages. Yes, that was a $300,000 check under a newspaper in a driveway in Palo Alto. We won't give the address. With her $300,000 check in hand, Diane was ready to go to market. How? Here's what I find so fascinating about Diane's launch plan. There wasn't much of a plan, which raises the question, did she have any idea how big of a market she was chasing? I posed the question to Diane directly. Some of the the things that you repetitively do is you create markets that didn't exist before. and I think one of the interesting theories about scale is that sometimes the market never looks as big at the beginning as it ultimately ends up getting. Like Mm -hmm. a modern example is Uber. It's like, oh, it's just a limo, black car. Oh wait, it's transportation as a service. Is that the right thing to think about the early stage VMware? The technology is super important and obviously it drives a wedge in this duopoly, Mm -hmm. but what was your thinking about the initial VMware, the size of the market, the size of the business? What kind of opportunity were you pursuing?
0: Interestingly enough, For VMware, we did see VMware totally. We called it almost a Swiss army knife. There were so many benefits to running in a virtualized world that we were positive if we could get the market to adopt it, that it would be adopted everywhere.
1: I love this metaphor of a Swiss army knife. It sums up the curse and the blessing of inventing an all-purpose tool. On one hand, it's wonderfully versatile. On the other hand, how do you sell all of those features? We figured we'd go straight to the experts, the makers of the Swiss Army Knife, to find out how they refined their pitch over the course of a century. Turns out, their pitch is still evolving.
4: So XAVT has 80 implements, and there's some electronics in there, there's a thermometer, there's a timer, there's… you
1: know. That's Chris Costa, Director of Product Management and Packaging at Victorinox, and a sort of Swiss Army Knife historian he was trying to recall just a few of the 80 tools that are packed into their biggest model, the XAVT.
4: There's some digital aspects to the scale. It has a little flashlight. You know, it's it's got all the uh, standard things, large blades and corkscrews and, and, and things like that. So um, it's a it's a big beefy knife.
1: Now, it's exceedingly rare for a first-time buyer to walk into a Swiss Army knife shop and just say, Hi there. Give me your biggest, beefiest knife.
4: What's the biggest one you got?
1: Most people start with a smaller model. Maybe it's just a single folding blade. And that's where it begins. Once it's a first-time customer
4: and they've gotten, you know, one of our knives for a gift or something they picked up themselves, invariably they're, they're back for more. You know, do you have a knife for this? I am a... And, and you know, you name—I cook a lot, or I'm a baker, or I'm out on my boat. You know, so they'll come back and, and get more. I always say to people, you know, you know, you never know which one you're going to need till you need it. But when you need it, and it's it's with you, then you have a solution.
1: We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business.
2: There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down.
3: What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook.
1: Let's come back to Diane and her metaphorical Swiss Army knife. She was building tool after useful tool for VMware, and she was certain that, someday, they would all be used. From the beginning, she had a big vision for what VMware could eventually become.
0: We were positive if we could get the market to adopt it, that it would be adopted everywhere. We never were thinking of it in terms of dollars. We were always thinking of it in terms of how many computers can we run on.
1: Now, mind you, there's a lot of revisionist history in the business world. I know entrepreneurs who realize the scope of their vision only after their company scaled. They recall feeling sure-footed. They insist the long-term vision was always in the back of their minds. But the truth was a lot foggier. Diane is one of those rare entrepreneurs who really believed in her vision from the start. Even when she had no idea how to get there, she insisted to her staff that this idea was huge.
0: The first office manager I hired, who really was kind of my chief operating officer, VJ Ritchie. she came in when we were 10 people And she still reminds me how I said to her, I said, Vijay, this technology is going to run on every computer system in the world someday.
1: There's a power to balancing this sort of exuberance against short-term realism. It's not easy to inspire your team, absent a clear path. Believing in this vision and selling it is an essential part of the entrepreneurial crab walk. Because if you really sell it, your team will stick around even as you push them all to drop what they're doing and move sideways. And you have a lot of sidestepping ahead of you as you embark on the most critical journey for a young company, to search for your first users and establish your first market. How did you start building your (laughs) go-to-market?
0: You start throwing spaghetti at the wall. No, we, uh, yeah, we were trying everything.
1: On her first attempt, Diane reached out to IT teams and promised huge savings on servers. The response from customers total disinterest. It was the 90s, the first dot-com boom. Who needed savings?
0: They didn't feel the need to have efficiency, so we were really having a rough time explaining the benefits of this to them.
1: So Diane started selling her idea to fans in the oddest places.
0: We noticed the bulk of our first customers were college professors. They were physicists and chemists, and, and, and so that was our joke. VMware, it's not for everybody. You gotta be a college science professor.
1: College science professors? Not exactly a scalable market, but sometimes discovering your customer base can be as random and unexpected as discovering the product itself. Luckily for Diane, and unluckily for everyone else, the dot-com bubble burst. Suddenly, struggling companies showed up at her door in search of savings.
0: A lot of companies started discovering they didn't need to buy new servers if they bought VMware. So then it was really almost uncanny, but we had several ...of our biggest customers had declared bankruptcy. And then when this happened, we all, VMware, it's not for everybody. you got to go bankrupt to appreciate it.
1: (laughs) It's one thing to sell the idea of savings to crash trapped professors and companies. What about the rest of the Swiss Army knife? Here, Diane faced another hurdle. Customers were willing to dip a toe into a wild world of virtual machines. But it was a newfangled technology. What's a virtual machine anyway? It sounds like something that could wipe out all of your company's data in a virtual nightmare. Diane recognized the problem.
0: So initially, we were reasonably smart about it, where we said, look, nobody's going to run their server on this. You know, they're not going to trust it to run all their mission critical. It was clear that
1: companies weren't going to thrust their core business into a new, untested product. Rather than sell the whole Swiss Army knife, she focused on the most pressing use case. It was as if she said, Forget the blade, the scissors, and the screw. Let's just sell the tweezers. In her case, she picked a teeny group of potential users, Linux developers. There was a teeny group of developers who just loved the Linux operating system, but they hated the way Linux wouldn't play nice with the dominant operating system, Windows. Diane felt their pain.
0: And where is the biggest pain point? Well, it's all these Linux developers that have to run Microsoft Outlook for their mail, and so they have to have two machines. Well, we fix that.
1: Now you don't have to know a thing about Linux developers to appreciate this twist of the story. Turns out that Diane Green had marketed a tool to one of the fastest growing professional groups in Silicon Valley. Linux developers were all the rage. They took off like a grassroots geek movement.
0: Some VC called me up and he's like, how did you know? you know that Linux was gonna take off and you were the perfect tool? I'm like, we had no idea Linux was going to take off. We just knew it was the perfect first market for us. And also we knew they were really technical users, so they'd be more adventurous. And so that's where we started.
1: Notice the term she used here. She targeted adventurous users. Now, some products don't require adventurous users. One tweak makes it instantly appealing to any and all users. It takes off overnight, and then the market is in full view waiting to be captured. Should that happen to you, congratulations, you're awfully lucky. Most entrepreneurs start off to the side of the market of their dreams, serving a teeny cohort of users. They're a passionate bunch. You may even have an affectionate pet name for them. At PayPal, we called our first diehard fans the Power Sellers. They peddled huge volumes of merchandise on eBay. At LinkedIn, we had the Lions, which stood for LinkedIn Open Networkers. They were always asking us to make every member of LinkedIn, including busy CEOs, reachable via email. Not the best idea, but we appreciated their enthusiasm. And for Diane, her adventurous users were the sysadmins, or system administrators. system
3: administrators.
1: And these people have a ton of clout. They can channel a corporate's IT budget to whatever solution makes their lives easier. Diane learned that when you make a sysadmin happy, even with a functional equivalent of a pair of tweezers, we will start eyeing the whole Swiss Army knife.
0: Sysamyn started realizing this is an amazing tool for us for playing around with operating systems. So we had a huge Sysamin population, and then they became evangelists. So when we had the server product, they wanted to run it on their servers. Our user conferences were almost like the original Apple user conferences, a lot of passion and excitement. And we'd have these all-night raves where people would use this. And we'd build a huge data center at the conference, you know, to get people certified.
1: By the way, these little-known VMware raves are still raging. YouTube the words VMworld, and you'll get a glimpse of their customer appreciation parties. The champagne is flowing. There are no mosh pits as far as I can tell, but who knows what the sysadmins are up to when they're beneath the trees where nobody sees. So in one sense, Diane was lucky to find her way from college professors to bankrupt companies to Linux developers to the whole sysadmin community and their secret all-night raves. But there's a hidden logic to her sideways journey. It comes from a question that Diane posed earlier. It's a fantastic question to ask about your users. Where is the
0: biggest pain point?
1: It's a time-tested path to scale. Set aside for the moment your fantasies about what your product might become and sidle up to the users who need part of it right now. The more indispensable you are to these users, the more receptive they will be to your larger pitch. And before long, you too can sell the whole Swiss Army knife.
0: We were on a track to do $100 growing over 100% a year, highly high margin. In
1: 2003... From this position of strength, Diane and her partners sold VMware to EMC for $625 million. Five years later, Diane stepped down as CEO. In 2012, she joined Google's board of directors. But every once in a while, she had this nagging thought. As massively as VMware scaled, she was convinced it could have been bigger. She was still looking sideways to the market they had left behind. That market... Eventually became known as the cloud.
0: We called ESX Server ESX Server because it was Elastic Sky. The ES and ESX is Elastic Sky. So we, you know, and this is long before anybody had coined the term cloud. So you could imagine the pivot would have been to say, okay, now there's a cloud with VMware, right? And then that would have been a much bigger market than we'd ever dreamt of. But we did dream of the market that it has.
1: So in layman's terms, The opportunity she's describing here is this. Look, we got customers to move their information to these virtualized machines. We could have convinced developers to write apps directly to those machines. That means we don't have to worry about software. We don't have to worry about devices. We don't have to worry about end users installing updates. All of the computing moves to the cloud. She even had the language right, Elastic Sky. It was quite an opportunity. I've heard investors and entrepreneurs talk like this before. They'll say things like, I had all the right ideas for breakthrough technology X. I was just a little early before the technology, but I had the idea. And sometimes that's true. In Diane's case, I think it's absolutely true. You could reasonably argue that the cloud exists because of Diane. She built the bridge and got everyone into the ether. But here's the thing about Diane. She doesn't let a big idea languish. To this day, she's pivoting towards that big opportunity. The idea came at her, as you might expect, sideways.
0: You know, I was on the board of Google Now Alphabet and, and had been sort of one day a week going over to try and see if I could be useful to the cloud folks and getting to know Ors Huzzle pretty
3: well. Ors Hutzley was employee number eight at Google and their first VP of engineering. He's now Senior Vice President of Technical Infrastructure.
0: Ors and I live near each other, so we start walking our dogs every Saturday. Now our dogs are so old, we have to walk almost without our dogs. Or if we walk with our dogs, we can't go very far. (laughs) That's how long we've been walking our dogs. So I was like, you really got to bring in someone to run the cloud business. This thing is happening. Google really needs to play in this space And they were being really choosy. And they were constantly saying, oh, we think it needs to be you. And I thought it was just them being nice to me. And I was like, yeah, sure. And actually, we found someone that I thought was really smart. I thought they were going to hire him. And basically, what happened, I was at a board meeting. And I was like, Sundar, did you hire him? And he's like, no, we decided not to. And it was at that point, I was just like, maybe I should do this. So they were like, good. And so then we started a discussion.
1: That discussion led Diane to her newest position, senior vice president of Google's cloud division. She agreed to lead Google's charge into the cloud on one condition.
0: I didn't sign up for it unless they were gonna let me merge sales, marketing, and engineering into one group because they were in completely separate, under separate management.
1: And once again, Diane is incredibly bullish on Google's market opportunity. She argues that Google has hardly even begun to tackle this market. Gmail, Google Docs, and Google Drive, that's only the beginning. Once you draw whole organizations into the cloud, it opens up unfathomable opportunities. Once again, she has a Swiss army knife in the making.
0: But now we could uh, serve every company in the world in every geography, in every type of organization. And so it wasn't very hard for people to get excited about that because it was this huge expansion of the impact we can have.
1: Looking back at the arc of her career, there's only one thing Diane might do differently. A slightly more defined plan would be nice.
0: I would personally do more planning. That, that would be the only thing.
1: I'm going to make a prediction here. Diane will actually write up that plan, and then her most scalable ideas, they'll come at her sideways. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thank you for listening. Next week on Masters of Scale, Slack CEO and co-founder Stuart Butterfield shares the human side of a daring pivot.
3: But man, that is, it is so hard because the job of a CEO is often just to come up with a story that enough people believe that you can make something happen in the world. And you have to convince investors and you have to convince the press and you have to convince potential employees and you have to convince customers. And I'd done a lot of convincing of people, you know, a lot of convincing of people to come work on this project, to leave whatever thing they were working on before, um, quit their job um, get paid poorly in exchange for equity in something that just didn't work.
1: Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Dan Kedmi, Chris McLeod, Jenny Cataldo, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music and sound design is by the Holiday Brothers. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Ye, Sayed Sepieva, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, and Stephanie Kent. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business.
2: Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know.
3: We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business